Chapter Twenty Two of Meridiana, The Adventures of Three Englishmen and Three Russians in South Africa. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Meridiana, The Adventures of Three Englishmen and Three Russians in South Africa by Jules Verne, translated by Ellen E. Fur. Chapter 22. Hide and Seek When daylight reappeared, the vessel was nearing the northern shore of the lake. There was no trace of natives. Consequently, the colonel and his companions, who had been ready armed, laid aside their guns as the queen and czar, drew up in a little bay hollowed in the rocks. The bushman, Sir John, and one of the sailors set out at once to reconnoiter the neighborhood. They could perceive no sign of Makololos, and fortunately they found game in abundance. Troops of antelopes grazed in the long grass, and in the shelter of the thickets, and a number of aquatic birds frequented the shores of the lake. The hunters returned with ample provision, and the whole party could enjoy the savory venison, a supply of which was now unlikely to fail them again. The camp was arranged under the great willows near the lake on the banks of a small river. The colonel and Strux had arranged to meet on the northern shore with the pioneer's little party, and the rest, afforded by the few days of expectation, was gratefully enjoyed by all. Palander employed himself in rectifying and adjusting the results of the latest observations, while Mokoum and Sir John hunted most vigorously over the fertile, well-watered country, abounding in game of which the Englishman would have been delighted had it been in his power to complete a purchase on behalf of the British government. Three days after, on the 8th of March, some gunshots announced the arrival of the remainder of the party for whom they tarried. Emery, Zorn, the two sailors, and the pioneer were all in perfect health. Their theodolite, the only instrument remaining to the commission, was safe. The young astronomers and their companions were received with joyous congratulations. In a few words, they related that their journey had not been devoid of difficulty. For two days, they had lost their way in the forests that skirted the mountainous district, and with only the vague indications of the compass, they would never have reached Mount Valkyria if it had not been for the shrewd intelligence of the pioneer. The ascent of the mountain was rough, and the delay had cost the young astronomers as much impatience as it had their colleagues on Mount Skarzev. They had carefully by barometrical observations, calculated 
that the summit of Valkyria was 3,200 feet above the level of the sea. The light, increased by a strong reflector, was first lighted on the night of the 4th, thus the observers on Mount Skorzev had perceived it as soon as it appeared. Embry and Zorn had easily discerned the intense fire caused by the burning fortress, and with the third light had completed the measurement of the triangle. And did you determine the latitude of the peak? said the colonel to Emery. Yes, most accurately, replied Emery. We found it to be 19 degrees, 37 minutes, 35.337 seconds. Well, gentlemen, said the colonel, we may say that our task is ended. We have measured by means of 63 triangles an arc of more than 8 degrees in length. And when we have rigidly corrected our results, we shall know the exact value of the degree and consequently of the meter in this part of the globe. A cheer of satisfaction could not be repressed amongst the others. And now, added the colonel, we have only to descend the Zambezi in order to reach the Indian Ocean. Is it not so, Mr. Strux? It's so, answered Strux, but I think we ought still to adopt some means of testing our previous operations. Let us continue our triangles until we find a place suitable for the direct measurement of a base. The agreement between the length of the base obtained by the calculations and by the direct measurement will alone tell what degree of accuracy we ought to attribute to our observations. Strux's proposition was unanimously adopted. It was agreed to construct a series of subsidiary triangles until a site could be measured with the platinum rods. The steamboat, descending the effluence of the Zambezi, was to await the travelers below the celebrated Victoria Falls. Everything being arranged, the little troop, with the exception of four sailors on board, the Queen and Tsar, started the next day at sunrise. Some stations had been chosen to the east and the angles measured, and along this favorable country, they hoped easily to accomplish their auxiliary series. The bushmen had adroitly caught a quagga, of which, willing or unwilling, he made a beast of burden to carry the third light, the measuring rods, and some other luggage of the caravan. The journey proceeded rapidly. The undulated country afforded many points of sight for the small accessory triangles. The weather was fine, and it was not needful to have recourse to nocturnal observations. The travelers could nearly always find shelter in the woods, and besides, the heat was not insufferable, since some vapors arose from the pools and streams which tempered the sun's rays. Every want was supplied by the hunters, and there was no longer anything to be feared 
from the natives, who seems to be more to the south of Lake Ngame. Matthew Strux and the Colonel seem to have forgotten all their personal rivalry, and although there was no close intimacy between them, they were on the most perfect terms of courtesy. Day after day, during a period of three weeks, the observations steadily proceeded. For the measurement of a base, the astronomers required a tract of land that should be level for several miles, and the very undulations of the soil that were desirable for the establishment of the points of sight were unfavorable for that observation. They proceeded to the northeast, sometimes following the right bank of the Knobi, one of the principal tributaries of the upper Zambezi, in order to avoid Makito, the chief settlement of the Makololos. They had now every reason to anticipate that their return would be happily accomplished, and that no further natural obstacles would occur, and they hoped that their difficulties were all at an end. The country which they were traversing was comparatively well known, and they could not be far from the villages of the Zambezi, which Livingstone had lately visited. They thus thought with reason that all the most arduous part of their task was over, when an incident, of which the consequences might have been serious, almost compromised the result of the whole expedition. Nicholas Palander was the hero, or rather was nearly being the victim, of the adventure. The intrepid but thoughtless calculator, unwarned by his escape from the crocodiles, had still the habit of withdrawing himself from his companions. In an open country, there was no great danger in this, but in woods, Palander's abstraction might lead to serious consequences. Strux and the bushman gave him many warnings, and Palander, though much astonished at what he considered an excess of prudence, promised to conform to their wishes. On the 27th, some hours had passed since Strux and Mokum had seen anything of Palander. The little troop were traveling through thickets of low trees and shrubs extending as far as the horizon. It was important to keep together, as it would be difficult to discover the track of anyone lost in the wood. But seeing and fearing nothing, Palander, who had been posted, pencil in one hand, the register in the other, on the left flank of the troop, was not long in disappearing. When towards four o'clock, Strux and his companions found that Palander was no longer with them. They became extremely anxious. His former aberrations were still fresh in their remembrance, and it was probably the abstracted calculator alone by whom they had been forgotten. The march was stopped, and they all shouted in vain. The bushmen and the sailors dispersed for a quarter of a mile in each direction, beating the bushes, trampling through the woods and long grass, firing off their guns, but yet without success. 
that it became still more uneasy, especially Matthew Strux, to whose anxiety was joined in extreme irritation against his unlucky colleague. This was not the first time that Palander had served them thus, and if the colonel had laid any blame on him, Strux would not have known what to say. Under the circumstances, the only thing to be done was to encamp in the wood and begin a more careful search. The colonel and his companions had just arranged to place their camp near a glade of considerable extent when a cry, unlike anything human, resounded at some distance to the left. Almost immediately, running at full speed, appeared Palander. His head was bare, his hair dishevelled, and his clothes torn in some parts almost to rags. His companions plied him with questions, but the unhappy man, with haggard and distended eye, whose compressed nostrils still further hindered his short, jerking respiration, could not bring out a word. What had happened? Why had he wandered away? And why did he appear so terrified? At last, to their repeated questions, he gasped out in almost unintelligible accents something about the registers. The astronomers shuddered. The registers, on which was inscribed every result of their operations, and which the calculator had never allowed out of his possession, even when asleep, these registers were missing. No matter whether Palander had lost them, or whether they had been stolen from him, they were gone, and all their labor was in vain. While his companions, mutely terrified, only looked at each other, Matthew Strux could no longer restrain his anger. He burst forth into all manner of infective against the miserable man, threatening him with the displeasure of the Russian government, and adding that, if he did not suffer under the knout, he should linger out his life in Siberia. To all this, Palander answered but by a movement of the head. He seemed to acquiesce in all these condemnations, and even thought the judgment would be too lenient. But perhaps he has been robbed, said the colonel at last. What matters, cried Strux, beside himself, what business had he so far away from us after our continual warning? True, replied Sir John, but we ought to know whether he has lost the registers or been robbed of them. Has anyone robbed you, Palander? continued he, turning to the poor man who had sunk down with fatigue. Palander made a sign of affirmation. Who? continued Sir John. Natives? Makololos? Palander shook his head. Well then, Europeans? asked Sir John. No, answered Palander in a stifled voice. Who then? shouted Strux, shaking his clenched fists in Palander's face. They were neither natives nor white men, but monkeys, stammered out Palander at last. It was a fact that the unhappy man had been robbed by a monkey, 
and if the consequences of the incident had been less serious, the whole party would have broken out into laughter. Mokum explained that what had just happened was of frequent occurrence. Many times, to his knowledge, had travellers been rifled by these pig-headed chakmas, a species of baboon very common in South African forests. The calculator had been plundered by these animals, though not without a struggle, as his ragged garments testified. Still, in the judgment of his companions, there was no excuse to be made. If he had remained in his proper place, this irreparable loss would not have occurred. We did not take the trouble, began Colonel Everest, to measure an arc of meridian in South Africa for a blunderer like you. He did not finish his sentence, conscious that it was useless to continue to abuse the unhappy man, whom Strax had not ceased to load with every variety of vituperation. The Europeans were, without exception, quite overpowered by emotion. But Mokum, who was less sensitive to the importance of the loss, retained his self-possession. Perhaps even yet, he said, something may be done to assist you in your perplexity. These chakmas are always careful of their stolen goods, and if we find the robber, we shall find the registers with him. But time is precious, and none must be lost. The bushman had opened a ray of hope. Palander revived at the suggestion. He arranged his tattered clothes as best as he could, and having accepted the jacket of one sailor and the hat of another, declared himself ready to lead his companions to the scene of his adventure. They all started off towards the west, and passed the night and the ensuing day without any favorable result. In many places, by traces on the ground and the bark of trees, the bushman and the pioneer recognized unmistakable vestiges of the baboons, of which Palander affirmed that he was sure he had seen no less than ten. The party was soon on their track, and advanced with the utmost precaution, the bushman affirming that he could only count on success in his search by taking the chakmas by surprise, since they were sagacious animals, such as could only be approached by some device of secrecy. Early the following morning, one of the Russian sailors, who was somewhat in front, perceived, if not the actual thief, yet one of its associates. He prudently returned to the little troop, who came at once to a halt. The Europeans, who had resolved to obey Mokum in everything, awaited his instructions. The bushmen begged them to remain in quietness where they were, and taking Sir John and the pioneer, turned towards the part of the wood already visited by the sailor, carefully keeping under shelter of the trees and the bushwood. In a short time, the bushman and his two companions caught sight of one chakma, and almost immediately of nine or ten more, 
gambolling among the branches. Crouching behind a tree, they attentively watched the animals. Their long tails were continually sweeping the ground, and their powerful muscles, sharp teeth, and pointed claws rendered them formidable even to the beasts of prey. These chakmas are the terror of the birds, whose fields of corn and maize, and occasionally whose habitations are plundered by them. Not one of the animals had as yet espied the hunters, but they all continued their sport, yelping and barking as though they were great ill-favored dogs. The important point for determination was whether the actual purloiner of the missing documents was there. All doubt was put aside when the pioneer pointed out a chakma wrapped in a rag of Palander's coat. Sir John felt that this creature must be secured at any price, but he was obliged to act with great circumspection, aware as he was that a single false movement would cause the whole herd to decamp at once. Stay here, said Mokum to the pioneer. Sir John and I will return to our companions and set about surrounding the animals, but meanwhile do not lose sight of them. The pioneer remained at his post, while Sir John and the bushman returned to Colonel Everest. The only means of securing the suspected culprit was to surround the whole troop. To accomplish this, the Europeans divided into separate detachments, one composed of Strugs, Emory, Zorn, and three sailors, was to join the pioneer and to form a semicircle around him. In the other, comprising the colonel, Mokum, Sir John, Palander, in the other three sailors, made a detour to the left, in order to fall back upon the herd from the other side. Implicitly, following the bushman's advice, they all advanced with the utmost caution. Their guns were ready, and it was agreed that the chakma with the rakes should be the aim for every shot. Mokum kept a watchful eye upon Palander, and insisted upon his marching close to himself, lest his unguardedness should betray him into some fresh folly. The worthy astronomer was almost beside himself in consternation at his loss, and evidently thought it a question of life or death. After marching with the frequent halts, which the policy of being unobserved suggested, and continuing to diverge for half an hour, the bushman considered that they might now fall back. He and his companions, each about twenty paces apart, advanced like a troop of ponies on a war trail, without a word or gesture, avoiding even the least rustling in the branches. Suddenly, the bushman stopped. The rest instantly followed his example, and standing with their finger 
on the lock of their guns were ready to raise them to their shoulder. The band of chakmas was in sight. They were already sensible of some danger and seemed on the lookout. The great animal which had stolen the registers had, to their fancy, an appearance of being especially agitated. It had been already recognized by Palander, who muttered something like an imprecation between his teeth. The chakma looked as if it was making signs to his companions. Some females, with their young ones on their shoulders, had collected in a group, and the males went to and fro around them. The hunters still drew on, one and all, keeping a steady eye direct towards the ostensible thief. All at once, by an involuntary movement, Palander's gun went off in his hands. Sir John broke out into an exclamation of disgust and instantly afterwards fired. Ten reports followed. Three chakmas lay dead on the ground, and the rest, with a prodigious bound, passed over the hunter's heads. The robber baboon alone remained. It darted at the trunk of a sycamore, which it climbed with an amazing agility, and disappeared among the branches. The bushman, having keenly surveyed the spot, asserted that the registers were there concealed, and fearing lest the chakma should escape across the trees, he calmly aimed and fired. The animal, wounded in the leg, fell from branch to branch. In one of its four claws it was seen to clutch the registers which it had taken from a fork of the tree. At the sight, Palander, with a leap like a chamois, darted at the chakma, and a tremendous struggle ensued. The cries of both man and beast mingled in harsh and discordant strain, and the hunters dared not to take aim at the chakma for fear of wounding their comrade. Strux, beside himself with rage, shouted again and again that they should fire, and in his furious agitation he would probably have done so, if it had not been that he was accidentally without a cartridge for his gun, which had been already discharged. The combat continued. Sometimes Palander, sometimes the Chakma, was uppermost. The astronomer, his shoulders lacerated by the creature's claws, tried to strangle his adversary. At last, the bushman, seizing a favorable moment, made a sudden dash and killed the ape with one blow of his hatchet. Nicholas Palander, bleeding, exhausted and insensible, was picked up by his colleagues. In his last effort, he had recaptured his registers, which he was found unconsciously grasping to his bosom. The carcass of the chakma was conveyed with glee to the camp. At the evening repast, it furnished a delicious meal to the hunters. To all of them, but especially to Palander, 
not only had the excitement of the chase quickened their appetite for the palatable dish, but the relish was heightened by the gratifying knowledge that vengeance was satisfied. End of chapter 22